2: this is the tom hartman program and greetings my
3: friends patriots lovers of democracy truth and justice believers in peace freedom and the american way tom hartman here with you Congressman Adam Schiff, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, is going to drop by. He's got a new bill, the Equal Health Care for All Act. If you want to learn about that, it's going to be fascinating. Stephen Donzinger is being sent to prison. Greg Palos is going to drop by to discuss that. And Robert Costa is going to be with us. We're going to do a deep dive into his new book with Bob Woodward, Peril. So it's going to be a lot of stuff to talk about today. I want to start with a couple of things. Actually, the first there's two trials going on right now, two right-wing trials going on. The Kyle Rittenhouse trial where the prosecution and the judge are now saying, uh, you can't really uh, claim that these people who Kyle Rittenhouse killed are victims. We have to refer to them as looters. Um, This is getting bizarre. And then over in the Charlottesville trial, the Unite the Right trial, (laughs) they're asking jurors Richard Spencer, you know, the Nazi, the right-wing Nazi, who's acting as his own defense lawyer, is asking jurors if they're listening to the Tom Hartman program. And if so, they're being struck off the jury roll. I mean, it's just totally, totally weird. And, you know, this (laughs) this is pretty alarming. This is over at Daily Kos. The headline, this is by David Niewart. I'm not sure how he pronounces it. It's uh, The headline is, Charlottesville Jury Selection Shows How Deeply the Right-Wing Smear of Antifa Has Penetrated. And this is the jury selection process. He writes, David writes, uh, defendants uh, Richard Spencer and Chris Cantwell, who claimed that there was not a balanced perception of Antifa. So, the, you know, they're pitching this to the, ju- the judge as, you know, allowing or not allowing particular questions to potential jurors. This one prospective juror, number 220, was questioned about his politics because he reads Daily Kos, and he was also asked about listening to this program, the Tom Hartman radio program. And Cantwell then asks Moon, the the judge, to strike the juror, saying he has extreme views. And uh, Spencer, uh, Richard Spencer, chimes in and says, uh, the idea that he's a Daily Kos reader and watches the Tom Hartman program and hasn't heard of Richard Spencer is incredible. I think he's lying to get on the jury. Well, that's interesting so if somebody watches this program on free speech tv or youtube or twitter or whatever or listens to it on sirius xm or radio stations across the country you know or on their smart speakers via tune in and whatnot then then they're not eligible to serve on a jury really that's how crazy it's gotten so you know number one number two speaking of juries there's another trial going on in wisconsin the murder trial for kyle rittenhouse this kid who brought a an ar-15 to up to to uh, kenosha to to wisconsin to uh, to kill a couple of and he killed you know two people and nearly killed a third but blew a big piece of this guy's arm away and the judge in this case this is absolutely astonishing the judge in this case has ruled that the prosecution you know they're trying to put rittenhouse in jail for murder that the prosecution cannot call the people that rittenhouse killed the victims of his actions the judge says this is these are his exact words if more than one of them were engaged in arson riot and looting i'm not going to tell the defense that you can't call them that In other words, the defense will say, you know, these looters, these arsonists, these rioters, rather than these victims. And and then the prosecution would like to call them victims, and the the judge says, the word victim is a loaded, loaded word. Alleged victim is a cousin to it. So if I'm reading this right, and I might be wrong, I certainly wasn't there, but it sounds like they're going to put the people who died on trial. I mean this is an old strategy. Right? It's been used against rape victims forever. Is put the victim on trial. Oh, these people he shot, they were looters. They were arsonists. They were Antifa. They were terrible people. They deserved to die. And then the jury is like sympathetic and they're like, "Oh, well, you know, maybe you did a good job of, you know, kind of cleaning up the the streets." This program and my positions. I mean, what they're doing is essentially characterizing my positions as being the, the radical left and Antifa and all this stuff. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm opposed to fascism, as was my dad. You know, he, right out of high school, joined the army to go fight the fascists in World War II. I don't see that as an indictment. And pretty much every position that I hold, I, I don't think is something that is held by only a minority of people on the far left. The vast majority of Americans, you know, want wall street reform they want you know veterans to have jobs they want political ads to be disclosed they want medicare and medicaid and social security to be strengthened you know they want the banksters to be under control they you know would like a a trade policy that brings our jobs home i mean it's just I am not the far left, I am really, the the positions that I take on this program and that I publish at HartmanReport.com, generally speaking, are, you know, I used to refer to it as the radical middle when we started the show, as, you know, Tom Hartman and the radical middle back, you know, 18 years ago. I dropped that because nobody knew what it meant and it just, it was kind of gibberish, but really, I think that's where we're at. The, The vast majority of Americans want actual, and you could call it radical because it's significant change. And then you've got these crazies on the right, the entire Republican Party and Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, who are saying, oh, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, we've got to protect the billionaires. We can't tax them. You can't do that. Sorry. You've got to protect the fossil fuel industry. They're not representing the majority of Americans. They're only representing a very small minority of very wealthy Americans. But, you know, in the Unite the Right trial, it's like, oh, are you listening to Tom Hartman we're going to get rid of you? so keep an eye on these things i i think both these trials are going to produce some really fascinating outcomes so glenn in san diego california Hey, glenn what's on your mind today
4: hey uh tom how you doing just wanted to first congratulate you on your uh expanding notoriety national notoriety for uh being uh, cited in some of these trials. Yeah, I'm not happy about it, frankly. But anyway. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm teasing you, obviously. Yeah. OK, real quick, I just wanted to field a quick idea to, and add it sort of into the National League, guys. What do you think would happen if uh, legislation were passed with two main purposes? OK, and hopefully this will be looked at as a elegantly simple alternative solution to conventional solutions of finance reform, political finance reform, the first thing would be make all political advertising of any kind, regardless of platform, free of charge. Okay? Number two, make all advertising, again, by legislation, make it mandatory that it's truthful, and that if it isn't, make the people that are making the money off the advertising, which would be TV stations, radio stations, uh whatever internet platforms and right. then um, make them responsible and give them huge fines for failure to do so.
3: The facial problems with both of those, first of all, telling radio and television stations that they had to carry advertising without significantly limiting it is, is I think, an inappropriate government interference in private commerce. And certainly that would be the pushback to it. And then secondly, saying that radio and television stations had to determine what's true you know again we've got so many gray areas where my truth is is your not truth kind of thing that's very difficult but but i think the spirit of what you're suggesting glenn is solid and we actually did have that we had national presidential debates that were carried without advertising that were moderated by the league of women voters this ended when george herbert walker bush refused to let the league of women voters run the debate with jimmy carter or Was it Carter? Uh, No, it was, excuse me, with uh, Bill Clinton. And refused to participate in it unless it was done by a private, independent group that had Republicans, overt Republicans as members of their group. And that's how we got this presidential debate commission thing that's just given us milquetoast debates, you know, no more Nixon-Kennedy debates. So I think that that's the way to do it, Glenn. Glenn, I got to run, but thanks for the call. This is Robert Costa, the national political reporter with the Washington Post and co-author of the book Peril with Bob Woodward. Uh, Costa Reports is his Twitter handle by the way. C-O-S-T-A Reports. And uh, Bob, welcome to the program. This is an absolutely extraordinary deep dive, and before I get into any you know, specific questions about it, uh, you, you, you characterize the events of January 6th as a national security emergency that was felt globally. A, you want to expand on that, and B, are there any particular points about this book that you want to make right up front?
1: The rest of the world is watching what happens on January 6th. Allies and adversaries, China, Iran, North Korea, they're all watching this domestic political crisis and insurrection at the Capitol. And they're wondering, is the United States stable? Is this great democracy in modern history going to have a peaceful transition of power. And this alarm abroad is captured in a phone call between General Lee, the head of the People's Liberation Army in China, and General Mark Milley, the senior military officer, two days after the insurrection, where Lee ponders the question, uh, is the U.S. collapsing? Milley reassures him it is not, and the U.S. is going to hold it together. He says democracy can be sloppy sometimes. But this reporting is revealing of how January 6th was not just about an insurrection in Washington. It was about uh, the spark of instability and chaos that it created across the world.
3: Well, and and, and you guys, uh, I believe, were the first to reveal that, that phone conversation. It was wildly m- mischaracterized in the media as, you know, Millie essentially begging the Chinese not to attack us or exploit this or something like that, when um, it was kind of the other way around, was it not?
1: Our book makes it very clear that Millie was working within his duty, within the procedures of his office, to try to make sure that something crazy didn't happen. Yeah. He has the Speaker of the House calling him saying Trump's unhinged, and he believes Trump's behavior has deteriorated to the point where, even though he's not a psychiatrist, he has to make a snap judgment that Trump seems to be in serious mental decline. In his assessment, so he wants to protect the procedures around nuclear weapons, and military strikes.
3: It, would it be accurate to say that there were really two January 6th insurrections? One was the legal effort that uh, I believe your book lays out. John Eastman was the you know the author of this memo uh, that uh, to, to basically re- recreate. Uh, in fact, back in March of 2020, I, I wrote an op-ed uh, for Salon that was. Uh, you know, that laid out what happened in the election of 1876, you know, when, when Sam Tilden won the majority of the Electoral College votes and won the majority of the national popular vote, but because three southern states and Oregon, uh, three southern states that were occupied by the Union Army and Oregon, which was occupied at the time by the Ku Klux Klan, uh, submitted two sets of electors to Washington, D.C., um, There were they, they basically... Didn't hit that 50% threshold with either one of the candidates, and therefore it got thrown to the House of Representatives. Uh, there's a whole long story there about how the House, you know, uh, came up with a compromise to stab black people in the back and end Reconstruction, and, and uh, therefore we ended up with Rutherford Hayes as president, even though he lost the majority vote, the popular vote, and he lost the electoral college vote. But you know, I was saying this is this is their game plan, and it turns out it was actually was their game plan. and and so really there were that that there was a legal coup attempt um, you know that that ultimately might have even gone to the Supreme Court for ratification, like in two thousand or and there was also when that failed when when Pence backed out of that, there was also this, okay, let's bring in the riot uh, What do you think about that?
1: You are spot on because right now we have the Department of Justice investigating and prosecuting hundreds of people who were involved with the violence at the Capitol. But there's another element to the insurrection, as you said, and our book details this. It was a legal and political war against Joe Biden from taking office, trying to prevent Biden from becoming president, to throw the election to the House of Representatives. And in John Eastman's memo, two pages, six parts, which we revealed for the first time, You see the plan, Pence, to walk away from the lectern, say Biden doesn't have the necessary 270 electors, bring it to the House where the House Republicans, due to the Constitution, uh, can elect him by delegation vote. And this was the plan, and Trump exerted pressure across the board, not just on Pence, but on DOJ lawmakers, individual state officials— to try to make this happen. It didn't happen at the end of the day because they didn't have alternate slates of electors. The Electoral Count Act in the late 19th century does provide for a possibility of dueling electors to be presented even after the Electoral College vote. This has only happened once in recent history in 1960, uh, in early 1961 with Hawaii, say Nixon won, not Kennedy. We haven't seen it since in any real way, a significant way. And, but this is what they wanted for Republican legislatures across the country to promote new slates. Uh, and, and the real question for democracy moving forward is, could it happen next time?
3: yeah, well, and and that's the the gist of so many of these laws. It seems to me like the the coverage on this and even the coverage on your book has been so skewed toward the sensational and the and the and the stuff that you can get good b-roll of people beating up cops at the Capitol building with rather than pointing out that you've got, 33 laws that have been passed in in uh, uh, 19 states, if I'm, if my recollection is correct, that uh, many of which assert that no longer is the Electoral College vote going to be determined by how the citizens of this state voted. The Electoral co- uh, vote that we send to Washington, D.C. is going to be t- determined by, by the uh, state legislature, which is entirely Republican-controlled. In other words, they, it, it seems to me like they're setting up, of the two parts of the January 6th, everyone's sitting around talking about, oh, my God, what happens in 2024 if they storm the Capitol again and try to kill, you know, the Speaker of the House again? But the real question is, what happens if in 2024 you get, you know, 10 or 12 states that are sending in, you know, two sets of electors to Washington, D.C., and it gets thrown into the House of Representatives, and the House, you know, 26 Republican states say, yeah, the Republican won, even though the Republican lost in a landslide. And then the Supreme Court says, well, that's what the Constitution says. You know, dust their hands off and
1: walk away. And as an author, you don't want to ever complain, but you're right that a lot of the stuff in the book is being missed. One thing that's being missed, to your point, is at the end of the book, James Clyburn, the House Majority Whip, is fuming in the spring of 2021 privately, bringing Manchin to his office, saying, you have to break the filibuster on voting rights. The Republicans are on the march in the States law after law is being changed. Republicans and Bannon acolytes are being promoted to election positions in states and municipalities. And at the end, Clyburn confumes almost in a shout, democracy is on fire and nothing's being done, in his view, at the federal level, while Republicans are busy every day in all of these states being better positioned for 2022 and 2024.
3: In, in, as a reporter, and, and in, in a way, a historian here, uh, Robert Costa, you, you know, you did a deep dive into this, but I, I know you're familiar with the larger picture of American history. Um, have we, I don't recall in my lifetime, certainly, um, you know, obviously you've got the precedent of the Civil War, but have we ever had a, a time when one of the major political parts out of the Civil War, when one of the major political parties basically said, we just don't believe in democracy anymore. We are going to use um, the rule of law as it were. We're gonna use the structural weaknesses of the system. We're gonna use the loopholes we can find to gain and hold power in defiance of the majority of Americans.
1: You have a Republican party that this week is revealing itself is still very much in the thrall of Trump. McConnell can't stand Trump. We report in the book he calls him a fading brand and off the track thoroughbred. Yet yeah, what did McConnell do this week? He endorsed, endorsed Herschel Walker in the Georgia Republican Senate primary race. That's the Trump favorite. He doesn't. He knows as much as anyone that Herschel Walker is very Trumpy, very close to Trump, has said some incendiary things in the past. But McConnell, like so many others, are pulled along in the riptide and make the decision to stay in that riptide with Trump for a variety of reasons we could get into. But this is a party that is not in any way tempering what's happening in the states when it comes to voting rights. If if at all they're looking away or actively stoking the effort.
3: Yeah, you have more than 200 interviews that that you and Bob Woodward conducted that became the, the, the skeleton of this book um... Uh, and some of them are absolutely fascinating. Uh, Paul Ryan, uh, you would think, represents the old Republican Party, uh, or you know, kind of the Bob Dole Republican Party. May arguably, maybe, uh, tell us about his conversations with Donald Trump.
1: Ryan is part of the old guard, even though he's kind of a younger guy. And when he comes in, he he wants to try to get who this person is because he and Trump had clashed during the Access Hollywood episode in October of 2016. And so, Ryan's searching for answers. How do you understand a total outsider, celebrity, real estate guy who seems to be just out of control in his personality, and a wealthy New York donor and doctor? sends to Ryan's psychiatry manuals, real psychiatry handbooks about narcissism, personality disorder. And Ryan studies them meticulously based on a reporting trying to get a grasp of Trump. And he learns from these articles that you can't uh, embarrass someone with that disorder publicly. You can't humiliate them or else they really lash out. And he tries to kind of come up with a way of containing Trump based on his informal diagnosis, he's not a psychiatrist, that Trump has narcissistic personality disorder. But as our book shows, even Ryan's approach, his ginger approach in handling Trump in some respects and confronting him at others just doesn't work. He ultimately leaves Congress and never really figures out Trump.
3: Did, he, did In your opinion, did he leave Congress because of Trump?
1: It's certainly part of it. I mean, episode after episode, you see Ryan just unable to deal with Trump or, or bring him toward a more normal direction.
3: Yeah, it's, it had to be a, a distressing moment, even for, uh, even for Paul Ryan. Uh, we're talking with Robert Costa. The new book is Peril, uh, co-written with uh, Robert Woodward. Uh, this is uh, Bob Woodward. It's, it's just an absolutely remarkable uh, piece of writing and research. We'll be right back with Robert Costa in just a minute. Stick around. Quick math the less your business spends on operations on multiple systems on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman, that's netsuite.com slash Hartman.
0: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills.
2: There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
3: Robert, tell us about Bill Barr's pleas to Donald Trump, kind of piggybacking on Paul Ryan. I mean, it was another attempt by a semi-rational Republican, although, you know, full-blown toady here. Well, uh, let me just toss it to you.
1: Uh, Bill Barr is someone who is a political ally of Trump. He's trying to help Trump out, to do what Trump wants. Uh, But even Barr at the end is is pushed to the brink, and he can't really get Trump to contain himself or to move in a a more just even-tempered direction. He has a confrontation with Trump in April of 2020, and he says to Trump in a private meeting, you are an effing a." And you got to stop being that. Voters think you're one, and you think you are an effing genius. And Barr's message is Trump is so egotistical at that moment in the campaign, so self-confident that he can overwhelm any problem, any crisis, with his personality and his support among republican base voters. Barr warns him, you're going to lose, you're going to lose, you really risk losing if you keep approaching everything in this bombastic, swaggering way, instead of trying to talk up a more sensible approach in the pandemic and other fronts. But the Barr story in peril is like so many other Republican stories in peril. People have their opinions, but ultimately Trump does what he wants, doesn't really listen. It's all about protecting Trump, staying in power.
3: I realize you don't get into this in the book, but I'm, I'm curious your thoughts of parallels between Trump and other historical figures who rose up within democratic societies, took them over, and ultimately devastated them over the short term. I am thinking Mussolini, Franco, you know, obviously Hitler, but that comparison is uh, sometimes considered over the top, Pinochet. Do you see parallels?
1: As a reporter, you see someone who, at the end of the day, becomes very comfortable with power. Mm -hmm. I've covered Trump for 10 years. I've interviewed him for a long time. And when he came into the presidency in 2017, it was advisors like Gary Cohn, his economic advisor, stealing documents off of his desk. That was the opening scene of Woodward's first book, Mm -hmm. Fear on Trump. And you see Trump in the beginning, this outsider who Paul Ryan and so many others thinking they can kind of nudge in a certain direction to guide along. But by the end, uh, and you can make the historical comparison. I won't. You see someone who is fully consumed with the presidency, wanting to stay in it, and knows the buttons to push in a way he did not in 2017. And, and and that really tested American democracy in those final days. From your reporting, do
3: you think that that was primarily motivated by his just love of power? Or was how much of that motivation was that being president kept him from being prosecuted as his past was coming
1: Visible. I can't read his mind, but I, I, I hesitate to just attribute things to ego or branding or narcissism. As a reporter, you've got to follow what people do, and Trump pushed everybody around. The DOJ, state officials, Pence, he was calling into the Willard War Room on January 5th, on the eve of the insurrection. Those scenes from the book have been included in the documents used by the January 6th committee. This was all very real, very serious.
3: Yeah, there you go. We're talking with uh, Robert Costa. The new book is Peril. So we have a new video up over at TomHarbin.com. It's about 18 U.S. Code 2384 which is a law that was published back in 19, or put on the books on June 25th, 1948. It was updated in 1956. And it's very, very straightforward. It says, if two or more persons in any state or territory or in any place subject to the jurisdiction of the United States conspire to overthrow, put down or destroy by force the government of the United States or to levy war against them or to oppose by force the authority thereof or by force to prevent Hinder or delay the execution of any law of the United States, or by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States, they shall be fined under this title or imprisoned for not more than twenty years or both. Tell me that doesn't perfectly describe what happened on January sixth. Seditious conspiracy. The videos at TomHartman.com. Check it out. We're talking with Robert Costa about his new book with Bob Woodward, uh, Peril. And, Robert, we had Defense Secretary Mark Esper. You cite his thoughts about the Insurrection Act. Can you tell us, tell our listeners, you know, what, what is the Insurrection Act and what was this conflict that Esper was weighing in on?
1: Esper is confirmed by the Senate. He's Secretary of Defense in the summer. And he's trying to prevent Trump from bringing the 82nd Airborne into Washington, D.C. Uh, they're, they're stationed. This is the most lethal force in the military over at Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland. Trump's saying to Esper, to Milly, bring them in. Bre- have them con- confront the racial justice protesters in Washington, D.C. Let's make this happen. Let's do it. And they're pushing back on Trump, saying, we can't do it. You bring him in, it's going to be worse than 1968 with LBJ and the riots. This is going to be a lethal fighting force against unarmed protesters. It's just a, a disaster for the country. It's going to be bloody. But Trump wants the, he wants the confrontation. Ultimately, it doesn't happen. But you see Esper fired days after the election, on November 9th. Uh, twenty twenty and that 's when Gina Haspel, the CIA director confides privately after esper's fired if esper's gone who's one of the bulwarks against Trump from really doing stuff like calling in the eighty second airborne what else is possible what's going to happen and she worries privately that the u s could be on the brink of a right wing coup this this
3: is it, the, the the one thing that I keep getting throughout your book is how close we came um how would you describe that, and and how diminished or amplified is that peril right now?
1: The peril s- stretches across the national security front with China. Uh, we, we have all these scenes in our book with China, but the China story continues with its hypersonic weapon. Uh, Millie and others are watching that very closely. What is China doing, uh, flexing its muscle like this? Does it have to do with a possible action against Taiwan? The U.S. is on edge, so are U.S. allies abroad about China. It's not only an economic superpower now, but it's a military one, and it, it and it has a lot of different dynamics at play in the South China Sea. It's a hair trigger environment that you have to watch every day, every second, if you're at the highest ranks of the U.S. military. So that peril certainly remains. And on the domestic front, the January 6th committee trying to get answers and accountability for an insurrection is stymied at almost every front. Uh, there's no John Dean yet stepping forward and saying, I was inside, and there were criminal acts. There's just a lot of hedging. There's a lot of uh, people blocking documents. Trump has sued the National Archives to block documents and assert executive privilege. So on the foreign front, we've just discussed it, but on the domestic front, so many unanswered questions about an insurrection that rattled American democracy, and that's certainly perilous.
3: Yeah, you you write about Kevin McCarthy. My my sense of Kevin McCarthy has always been that he's way out of his league, that he's he's yeah, I don't mean to sound uh snarky, but you know, not the brightest bulb on the tree. Um tell us about your your reporting on Kevin McCarthy.
1: He is someone who comes in to the House leadership after the 2010 midterms and he's been there now for about a decade. He's a survivor. Paul Ryan goes away, Eric Cantor goes away, McCarthy is kind of there in the post-Ryan era to be the House leader, and he sees Trump as someone who can help House Republicans. Unlike Ryan, who's uncomfortable with Trump, McCarthy is friendly with him. And I wrote a story once about how McCarthy ingratiates himself so much with Trump that he provided the president at the time with Starburst candies of his favorite flavors of Starburst in a jar just to make sure Trump knew he was on his side.
3: Hmm. Yeah. And, but
1: mccarthy at the end is saying to trump you gotta call biden you gotta have a peaceful transition but trump doesn't listen to mccarthy at the end but yet still it's mccarthy looking ahead to twenty twenty two believing he trump could be helpful
3: right and he's and he apparently still is we we have about uh, forty five seconds here robert um... I, how do the how the republicans deal with this going forward
1: There's a question of who's in power, who's in control. Is right. someone going to step up and counter Trump or not? I don't see it at this time.
3: Yeah, this this is this is grim stuff. Um, you also mentioned Rudy Giuliani's advice to Trump. you wanna give us the top
1: line on that? Giuliani's advice was just to fight on and to declare the election stolen. And that was the plan from November 4th and 5th through the end of the presidency. Never concede, never surrender, declare it all rigged. Fight it in the courts, and then when you fail in the courts, fight it on the vice presidential front. When he doesn't do it, speak out in his name. Pressure lawmakers, push it to the edge.
3: They're still doing it, too, aren't they? Yes, sir. Yeah, it seems that way. Robert Costa, the book is Peril, along with Bob Woodward. Robert, thank you so much for writing this book, and and thank you so much for dropping by here today for this uh, deep dive into it appreciate it thank you good talking with you uh brilliant work from one of america's most brilliant reporters we'll be back they're really mentioning this show at the uh, unite the right trial
2: you're listening to tom hartman
3: On the line with us is our old buddy Greg Palace, the investigative journalist, author of uh, How Trump Stole 2020, gregpallis.com, the website, greg underscore Pallis on Twitter. And uh, Greg, I was uh, looking at Stephen Donziger's Twitter feed this morning, and uh, he tweeted, so deeply moved by the supports of Representative Chuy Garcia. Representative Rashida, Representative McGovern, Representative AOC, Representative Cory Bush, Representative uh, Jamie Raskin for supporting the rally in Washington to demand my freedom. He says, make no mistake, I am being jailed because the air oil industry is scared of our movement. What's going on here?
2: Okay, just to remind people, Stephen Donsker is a human rights lawyer, graduated from Harvard with uh, Obama, and he spent his entire career fighting Chevron Corporation, Chevron Oil, on behalf of the indigenous people of Ecuador, the COFAN natives. I covered that story for BBC. I went into the jungle and saw, I saw the people covered with pustules. I saw the, the, the what, there were 16 billion, a billion gallons of sludge dumped in the jungle. He won a suit against Chevron for $9.5 billion to compensate victims and to clean up the jungle. Chevron didn't pay a penny. They stuck their assets out of Ecuador. Then they sued um, Donziger in New York. This is Chevron Oil. And said he tried to bribe a judge. This is a joke. This guy didn't have two nickels to, to rub together. Chevron Oil paid the judge $2 million. That wasn't a bribe. Anyway, he, so Donziger uh, lost this racketeering civil suit by Chevron. they bankrupted him for their legal fees. And now that's not enough. They demanded his laptop and iPhone and that would give away the names of his whistleblowers inside Chevron in the jungle. It's, he couldn't do that. So he's now facing, he has to report to a federal prison because a right-wing judge has ordered him to prison for six months for contempt of court. This has never happened in American history. No has ever gone out to prison for six months. He's already been three years under house arrest. It's absolutely insane. The United Nations Human Rights Commission judicial panel has ordered the United States... Just like they told Putin, uh, release the Volny. At the same time, they also said release Stephen Donziger to the United States government and compensate him. Whoa. this is insane, and I'm I'm worried that it's not just six months, but that at the end of six months, they'll say, "Don't give us the computer. It's another six months and another six months."
3: All right, um, because he's defying um, the international outrage. Hmm? because he's defying the, the, the judge essentially.
2: Yes, of course, the, the judge. There's already been a, um, a, a massive uh, complaint filed uh, not only by uh, the, the, most, uh, the, the number one professor expert on judicial misconduct from Harvard University, where this case is taught as a casebook example at Harvard of, of judicial misconduct. He's filed with courts to remove the judge. And he's been joined by bar associations from around the world, from the Vietnamese Bar Association, uh, the Israeli Bar Association, have, have all demanded removal of the, of the judge and releasing Donziger. And keep in mind that the that the, even the Trump administration wouldn't prosecute Donziger. So the judge, are you ready for this? Hired a former uh, Chevron lawyer to prosecute, be a private prosecutor against Donziger. This is, makes the first corporate prosecution in American history, uh, the you know, is, uh, and also let's you know, senators, White House, and Sanders and others have called for Donziger's release. Uh, you know, it's time for Merrick Garland to step to step in and um, restore justice. Is the main you know, message does, here,
3: Greg, yeah. that that Chevron appears to be trying to send? Uh, you know, cost us money, and we will mess with your life in a way that you can't imagine
2: absolute total destruction and I will admit that I got caught up in this because I covered the story for BBC and went to the jungle and uh, what Chevron was unhappy with I showed a uh, document that said that they had literally it was from the president of of, uh, of texaco unit of Chevron who said remove and destroy all documents about dumping sludge removing and destroy Remove and destroy were his words. I'm quoting it. And so they try to get me fired from BBC. They want to make examples of any journalist, but especially any lawyer like Donziger. He won $9.5 billion from them. They're not going to let that stand. This is, this is, the oil companies are doing like a KGB hit. They want to make sure that you see the bleeding body on the sidewalk.
3: Yeah, well, that's how the mob used to do it. Yeah, I get it. Greg, you also, uh, you did some some brilliant reporting for uh, Rolling Stone, as I recall, about January 6th. And you, you said that yeah. you, you've got some new information on that. Lay that on us.
2: Yes, well, I've been working for Rolling Stone, but this is an investigation did for the great consortium news. Uh, and uh, we, mm-hmm. you know, you just heard a new Rolling Stone report uh, about how the White House... Uh, had discussions, private discussions, with the people holding the rally uh, at the ellipse on January 6th. The rally led to the march, which led to the destruction of the Capitol. And we'd actually reported that back on January 15th. And here's the important thing, Tom. Here's the important thing. The rally was legal. That's our, called our First Amendment. You know, so you, Trump mm-hmm. can go to a rally. But sure. here's the key thing that, that, about these meetings. The White House was specifically told... You cannot have a march. It's illegal. We promised the Park Service in writing. In fact, I'm looking at the permit right now. It says they won't march to uh, to the Capitol. There will Mm -hmm. be no march. Mm -hmm. So therefore, there were no Park Police. There were no Capitol Police. There were no D.C. Police. No monitors, no ambulances, no control. And so they warned the White House it would be illegal and extremely dangerous to go ahead with any march. Yet the White House coordinated with a character named Ali Alexander, an ultra right guy, uh, now been subpoenaed by Congress after we identified him. He's the real instigator of this problem with Alex Jones. But listen to this, Tom. The White House. And they have not denied this information that we have. The White House sent uh, people to escort Jones and Alexander and Ali Alexander to the end of the parking lot, at the ellipse, and told them, here's where you will lead the march to the Capitol. And they all knew, Ali, Alexander, I have text messages to him warning him, it's against the law, don't do it. And then some character named Donald Trump at 1215 to the organizer's shock said we're marching to the capitol i'm going with you of course another lie is <laughs> he he went right. to the uh, to the east wing to eat popcorn or watch the mayhem but he sent these people off thousands of angry people off to the capitol well, what do you think is going to happen the organizer of the rally told me they're scared because they may go to jail now yeah. they may be bankrupted is is, um, is jenny thomas the
3: wife happen. of clarence thomas going to get wrapped up in this
2: I don't know. We're trying to check out that story, and we can't verify it. Uh, Mm -hmm. What we do know is that, well, the key thing is that Donald Trump was involved. That is, the White House knew he would have had to have known that calling for that march was an illegal act. And, Tom, let's remember, if you commit an illegal act, like calling for thousands of people basically authorizing a riot, and someone dies, and people died at the Capitol, you know, you're an accessory to a murder. This is no joke.
4: You know,
2: so it's important that they knew in advance it was illegal. They had discussions with the with the organizers of the rally, confirmed that uh, they knew, understood that they could not march. They did. It didn't take, you know, you don't, you don't need to be uh, the great Karnak to know if you send out thousands of angry people to the Capitol yeah. with no control and no cops, what's going to happen?
3: Greg, one last question for you. Down in Brazil. The Senate just released a thousand-page report indicting Jair Bolsonaro, the president, for crimes oh, yeah. against humanity, mass slaughter, whatever you know, for his COVID response. They've had over 300,000 people die from COVID down there. You know, their death toll yes. is about the same as ours. Uh, you know, calibrated for population, I believe. And if uh, the pandemic had happened when Barack Obama was president, and he had fumbled the response in order to try to get people back to work so that the economy didn't sag so he could get himself reelected, And then he failed to get reelected, and, and tried all this stuff. But even just that, you know, fumbled the response part. And as a result of that, hundreds of thousands of people died. Yesterday, Deborah Birx, Trump's COVID person, testified before the United States Senate that, uh, in her opinion, 130,000 Americans died because of Donald Trump's actions. Why is there no movement? Or is there, and I don't know it. I mean, you're the reporter. You're out there in the field all the time. Is there any kind of movement within the United States, presumably on the part of Democrats, I don't think any Republicans are going to do this, to hold Donald Trump accountable for mass slaughter?
2: Well, you know, once again, we're waiting on our Justice Department to return it from an injustice department. Merrick Garland's been very slow. This should at least, as they did in Brazil, which is, you know, not easy to do, they investigated the president and found him culpable of causing mass death, because he was, he was basically repeating Trump. He was like uh, Trump's, you know, little uh, glove oh, Right down to hydroxychloroquine, yeah. Yeah, hydroxychloroquine, the whole nine yards. Now, remember, we put quacks in jail for trying to sell quack patent medicines. You go to prison in the United States for that type of, of game, it's dangerous. And yet we had a president selling us chloroquine and inject yourself with bleach and and shove candy corn up your nose. Um, you know, uh, other people actually, you know, they they do hard time for this stuff. People got hurt, people died, and other nations are investigating their responses all over the world. You're seeing governments being held accountable, and of course in Brazil we're looking at uh, it was he was literally all he did was repeat Trump almost. Yeah. In fact, he, he proudly says, I'm quoting Trump. Trump is, I guess, his Surgeon General, right. a Bolsonaro. And, uh, you know, but at least there's some sense of accountability in other nations.
3: Yeah, but, but apparently not here, at least not yet. I think Congress should be on this, but anyhow, uh, the great Greg Palace. Greg, thanks a lot for dropping by today. Good talking to you.
2: Very welcome, Tom.
3: Yeah, thank you. is the Tom Hartman Program. Speaking the truth, the multinational corporations we'd really rather really you didn't know all about.
0: As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued
3: Congressman Adam Schiff is on the line with us. He represents the 28th District of California, is the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Schiff, S-C-H-I-F-F the website, Rep. Adam Schiff on Twitter. Congressman, welcome to the program. I understand you have this Equal Health Care for All Act uh, that, that uh, is kind of at the top of your mind right now. Tell us about this.
0: Uh, this is a bill that would treat equitable access to health much like we treat access to jobs and access to housing it would define equitable care, it would create a new office of uh, equity and civil rights within the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, and provide a right of action uh, when people don't get equitable care. It's, you know, a sad but tragic and not surprising fact that people showing up at a hospital or clinic uh, don't get the same care, often based on the color of their skin or their sexual orientation or other factors, and we want to make sure that we attack that problem which has been laid so bare by the pandemic
3: are you going to attach this to this reconciliation bill is this something you're proposing to be part of this larger legislation and what are your thoughts on where that reconciliation bill is at now that joe manchin has come out and said no billionaire tax i don't think so
0: i would love to make it part of reconciliation but but that is not the plan we are introducing this have introduced this as a standalone bill. Uh, We've been working on it really for about a year now to get the input of the Department of Justice and the Department of Health and Human Services, the provider community, we have the support of NAACP and the National Urban League and others. So uh, I think we'll um, really help attack problems of systemic racism within the healthcare system. Uh, In terms of where we are on reconciliation, I think we're going to the Rules Committee, which means that we're going to be taking up a rule some things to be worked out, uh, but a lot of the contents of the bill have been resolved, and, and a lot of the focus, as you say, is on the pay-fors. I'm glad to see that a alternate minimum tax for corporations is going to be included. It sounds like that's now a consensus item, and it really should be. There's no reason why some of America's most successful companies uh, should pay little or no tax. But the other pay-fors, like the billionaire's tax, are still... A bit in question. Yeah.
3: You're on the January 6th uh, commission or on the the House Select Committee that's investigating uh, January 6th. And it seems like there actually, we were talking with Robert Costa earlier on the program, and and he was pointing out that there were really two attacks on the United States on January 6th. One was done by guys in suits, uh, by and large, which was this effort to replicate the 1876 election where Sam Tilden actually won the popular vote and won the electoral college vote but Rutherford Hayes ended up the president because the because you had three southern states plus Oregon that uh, submitted d- dual sets of electoral college ballots and so they didn't hit that 50% threshold and so it got thrown into the House of Representatives and and you know worked out that deal to destroy reconstruction and Uh, I, you know, in fact, I wrote a piece for Salon back in March of 2020 saying this is exactly what they're going to do. And and sure enough, it was what they did. So you've got that attack, and then you've got the physical attack on the building itself, which seems like it was Trump's plan B if Pence wouldn't go along with plan A of, you know, repeating 1876. Is your committee splitting these apart? How entangled are these?
0: Well, first of all, I, I completely agree with Mr. Costa's conclusion. Indeed, I wrote a book recently, Midnight in Washington, and described exactly this that you had the insurrectionists in suits and ties, as I described them. Uh, and then you had those people outside attacking the Capitol, uh, beating police officers, trying to use physical force to stop the proceedings. And, you know, as the days went on after that bloody insurrection, you know, my anger grew, uh, you know, most uh, specifically at those insurrectionists in suits and ties. Who even after that bloody assault, were back on the House floor later that night, still trying to overturn the election. Uh, and I, I think the the most grave threat to our country going forward uh, is this effort now around the country, elections officials of their duties, give them over to partisan boards and legislatures. They seem to be determined that next time, if they you know couldn't find this time a Secretary of State in Georgia to come up with eleven thousand seven hundred and eighty votes that don't exist, next time they'll have someone in that position who will. And this, I I think, is the most uh, egregious threat to our democracy. Uh, We're interviewing witnesses almost every day, many uh, cooperating. Uh, You you tend to hear about the ones who are not cooperating. But even as those who are not cooperating, like Steve Bannon, we're moving quickly to hold them in criminal contempt.
3: So what happens in 2024 if you get enough Republican-controlled states. We've got 19 states where 33 laws have been changed, and in several of those states, the laws have been changed so that, basically, regardless of how the vote turns out in those states, the the legislature gets to determine the slate of electors that go to Washington, D.C. for the Electoral College. Or they could even submit dual ones, like the three southern states in Oregon did back in 1876. And just that simple act could deprive the electoral college of hitting that 270 threshold that, you know, that absolute 50% majority threshold and instantly, essentially, if my understanding is correct, throw this into the House of Representatives where each state gets one vote and you got 26 Republican controlled states and they just declare the Republican the winner, whether it's Donald Trump or whether it's Ted Cruz or whoever, you know, how do we respond to that?
0: Well, the Republican Party around the country is trying to change the laws so that they can more easily overturn the results next time. Uh, It's part of the reason why uh, we have to make sure that Democrats hold the majority in the House, uh, that Kevin McCarthy never becomes Speaker. Uh, Had Kevin McCarthy been Speaker uh, in January this year, he would have overturned the results of the presidential election, close to losing our democracy. The GOP right now has become an anti-democratic cult of the former president. And as long as that's the case, they're just gonna to have to be beaten at the polls. There's really no, no alternative. And in terms of the actions you're, ta- you're talking about, uh, you know, we'll obviously litigate uh, if a state tries to uh, subvert the will of its people and appoint a slate that does not reflect the popular will, contrary to, to state law um, of the people of that state. But they are really jeopardizing our democracy. There, there may very well be another violent attack on the Capitol. If there is, it'll fail like the last one. But like a lot of democracies that have ceased to become democracies, it's not always by violent means. More often, it's by using the instruments of a democracy against itself. And that's exactly what Republicans are doing around the country right now.
3: Yeah. Um, last question here. We, we're talking with Chairman Adam Schiff, uh, Chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Down in Brazil, the Senate, uh, the Brazilian Senate, has issued a thousand page report on Jair Bolsonaro, President Bolsonaro's. Uh, failure to deal with the pandemic and the subsequent massive death toll. Um, Deborah Burks yesterday testified before Congress that she thought 130,000 Americans were dead unnecessarily because of the way that uh, the Trump administration handled the COVID uh, crisis. Is there any committee or commission or effort on the part of Congress to hold anybody accountable for the unnecessary deaths in America?
0: Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, there are several committees examining the pandemic and what went wrong uh, so that people can be held accountable in the intelligence committee we're doing our own deep dive on what the intelligence community saw and when it's when it saw what it did and we want to make sure the intelligence community is well postured to be a tripwire for any future pandemic and I think the, the intelligence it's you know uh, too early for us to reach a definitive conclusion, but they were among the very early agencies to sound the alarm. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the former president's disastrous handling of the pandemic and the, the tragic loss of life, unnecessary loss of life, um, I, I don't think there's any question about that. His combination of this malignant narcissism, his hostility to science and fact, and his just overall incompetence the divisive messages on wearing a mask and following advice of health experts killed countless Americans. And the idea that someone like that, who, you know, resulted in so many American casualties more than than lost in Vietnam could ever be considered for any office again in America is just astounding and and cannot be allowed to happen. I'm with you. Chairman Adam
3: Schiff, uh, Congressman, you're the best. Thank you so much for dropping by today. It's great talking with you.
0: Thank you. Great to talk to you. Thank you.
3: Congressman Adam Schiff, representing California's 28th and also on the House Intelligence Committee, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, in fact. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Crusaders, The Epic History of the Wars for the Holy Lands by New York Times bestselling author Dan Jones. Uh, This is from chapter one. It begins the book, The Count and the Imam. Count Roger of Sicily lifted his leg and farted. By the truth of my religion, he exclaimed, there is more use in that than in what you are here to say. His advisors stood chastened and a little perplexed. The count before them was in his late forties and salted to his bones with the experience of military campaigning in southern Italy and the islands of the central Mediterranean. As a young warrior, he had been described by one flatterer as tall and well-made, a most fluent speaker, shrewd in counsel, far-sighted in the planning of things to be done, cheerful and pleasant to everyone. In middle age, he had hardened somewhat and was not one to waste his words on fools. The plan the advisors had recommended had seemed like a good one, as courtiers' plans very often do, before they are shredded by the critiques of short-tempered potentates. Not far across the sea from Sicily, roughly 75 miles at the closest point, lay the remains of what had in ancient times been called Carthage. Afterwards, the Roman province of Africa, and now in the 11th century, Ifriqiya Its cities, including the capital Medea on the coast, and Chiron Island, where a vast mosque and school had for many generations been frequented by the greatest philosophers and natural scientists in North Africa. Were under the shaky command of a crumbling dynasty of Berber Muslims known as the Zirids. The countryside was controlled by various Arab Bedouin tribes sent from Egypt to drive the Zirids out. Political stability was collapsing. Here lay warm and fertile farmlands. There sat prosperous port towns, all ripe for the taking. Roger's counselors thought so, and they had therefore recommended to their testy overlord the proposal of a cousin whom one source names only as Baldwin. This Baldwin had come into possession of a great army of Christian soldiers, and was casting around for somewhere godless to conquer. He had asked Roger's blessing to come to Sicily and use it as a launch pad for an invasion of Irafiqua. "'I shall be a neighbor of yours,' he had explained, as though this were good news but Roger of Sicily was not feeling neighborly. Irafiqua was undoubtedly ruled by various followers of Islam, he said, but those infidels happened to be sworn partners of the Sicilians in agreements that kept the peace and allowed for a rich exchange of goods in the island's markets and ports. The last thing he wanted, he ranted to his gathered minions, was a cousin imposing on his hospitality, waging a reckless war that would disrupt Sicilian trade if it was successful, and cost him a lot of money in military support if it failed. Irafia may indeed have been vulnerable, but if anyone was going to exploit that, it was going to be Roger himself. He had spent the last two and a half decades, almost his entire adult life, carving out his rule in the region, and it would have been a limp end indeed if he were now to put it at risk in pursuit of some harebrained scheme cooked up by a kinsman who had never troubled the soil of the island with his sweat. If this Baldwin wanted to fight Muslims, said Roger, he would have to find a different part of the Mediterranean in which to go about his business. There were plenty of places he could name that would be preferable to Sicily's backyard. He summoned Baldwin's personal envoy to his presence and informed him of his decisions. If his master was really serious, he said, then the best way to proceed is to conquer Jerusalem. That is how it all began. Roger, Count of Sicily, was 11th century Europe's ultimate self-made man. He was born around the year 1040 as the youngest of 12 sons sired by a minor nobleman from Normandy called Tancred of Hauteville. Given the protocols of inheritance, being born even as a second son implied a lifelong burden of fortune hunting rather than easy inheritance. To have 11 brothers ahead of you was a disaster. But by the end of the century, the Normans had begun to conquer their way around Western Europe. They took command of Saxon England in 1066. At the same time, southern Italy fell under their gaze and opportunities that may have seemed limited for younger sons within Normandy itself. For anyone prepared to travel, opportunity abounded. As a young man, therefore, Roger had left his homeland in what is now northwest France and sent out for territory that already called many of his kinsmen and countrymen the rich but unstable southern Italian regions of Calabria, and Apulia. Toe and heel of the Italian boot, Calabria and Apulia were lands where resources were plentiful, authority was contested, and an ambitious young man with a yen for politics and warfare might make his name. Other Normans of the Hauteville clan had already found success here, fighting against the rival superpowers in the region, principally the Byzantine Greeks and Roman popes, both of whom regarded the Normans with suspicion bordering on alarm. The book, Crusaders, The Epic History of the Wars for the Holy Lands, by Dan Jones.
2: You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.